For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. Let's talk about one of those things you shouldn't waste your time on. You may have heard tell that the Italians have themselves a new leader. Uh, Georgia Maloney has been elected over there, and our social media and news media has collectively lost their minds over it. Uh, they're using a lot of comparisons. They're using a lot of analogies. Can we just stop for a second? We talk about turning down the noise a lot on this, so let's let's just all be grown folk adult right now. With very few exceptions, I'm going to broad brush this and say all of us. I know there will be a few exceptions. You, yes, you, I'm talking to you, don't know anything about Italian politics, so just stop pretending that you do. I don't either. None of us do. We're trying to slam our stuff into what's going on in Italy. Please stop it. In the palm of your hand, you have this magical device that not only can tell you uh, things like cat pictures and how to yell at people, it can also give you insight, like you can read up on the history of Italy. You can read up on Italian politics, and you can actually learn what's going on over there before you hot take something off on Twitter about how so-and-so is the reincarnation of Mussolini, or how something is obviously right or not right, or socialist or not socialist, or fascist or not fascist. Some of that stuff may be true, but unless you put in the work to learn it, you don't really know that. And just because some talking head said so or some Twitter thread said so, that doesn't mean it either. So let's do a little reading about it. I'm going to pick from the Atlantic here. We're going to link to this whole piece. Again, read it for yourself. Go through all this stuff. Learn this stuff for yourself before you do things. So here's the deal. From the Atlantic, the Italian Constitution, which came into force in 1948, is resolutely anti-fascist. That's because Mussolini and the fascists that drug them into World War II, Il Duce, it's a mess. You need to go read it if you didn't learn about it in school. Uh, the country's political culture has never made a clean break with its extremist past. For a German gas station to sell items that commemorated Adolf Hitler would be shocking, but in Italy, the site of Mussolini memorabilia is not that unusual. Similarly, mainstream German political parties shun the far-right extremists, such as the Alternative for Germany in Italy. Parties with roots in fascism has long been accepted as part of the political scene. Even so, Sunday's electoral success of Giorgia Maloney and her party, the Brothers of Italy, that's the name of the party, is unprecedented. Marks the first time in Italy's post-war history that a party with fascist roots has won the most votes in a national election. Maloney, who received just over a quarter of the votes cast, now very likely to become the prime minister at the head of the far-right coalition with the League, that's Matteo Salvini, and Forza Italia, which is Silvio Berlusconi, former prime minister. How will the new government change Italy and how much damage could it do? Italian history gives reasons to worry a little bit. Brothers of Italy descended from the Italian Socialist Movement, or the MSI, which was founded in the aftermath of World War II by fascist politicians 
who had played a significant role in the Republic of Salo, the pro-Nazi puppet regime in the northern half of Italy after the Allies invaded Sicily in 43. Maloney's party has as its symbol a green, white, and red flame, which many regard as intended in its original design to express enduring loyalty to Mussolini. Maloney herself, who has led the Brothers of Italy since 2014, grew up in Garbatella, a working-class neighborhood of Rome. By the way, I'm a hillbilly, so if I'm slaughtering any of these Italian names, I do apologize. Uh, today, she regularly invades against immigrants, and the gay rights movement has made common cause internationally with the far-right parties and liberal leaders, such as Hungary's Viktor Orban. In June, she spoke at a campaign event for Vox, the rightest party in Spain, not the publication. In June, uh, she also campaigned in the righty party of Spain. 530 years ago, the capitulation of Granada put an end to the Reconquista. Adelusia turned Spanish and Europe became Christian, she said. That's a direct quote. Today, the secularism of the left and radical Islam threaten our roots. That's another direct quote. Compromise with such opponents is unthinkable. Parties of the right, such as Vox and Brothers of Italy, she said, need to stay clear and say a clear no to the LGBT lobby. That's a direct quote from her to gender ideologies, another direct quote, and to mass immigration. The prospect that a far-right party with fascist roots may soon lead Italy has understandably spooked international absorbers. Part of the reason that Maloney has, to an extent, distanced herself from her party's past. She has declared that fascism is history and suspended members who persisted in praising fascist leaders. Maloney has also sought to demonstrate that she would prove a reliable partner to Italy's European and Northern American allies. She has, for example, moderated the party's criticism of the European Union, emphasizing that she wants the country to stay in the Eurozone. And unlike many other far-right leaders in Europe, Maloney has been a vocal critic of Vladimir Putin and a staunch supporter of Ukraine. But the chief reason to doubt how much Maloney will change Italy is simply that she's neither as popular nor as powerful as her electoral victory may suggest. Her star is burning brightly now, but it may dim just as quickly. In the country's previous national election in March of 2018, the five-star movement stunned international observers by winning nearly a third of the vote. Maloney's Brothers of Italy just had 4%. Over the next three years, two consecutive governments collapsed amid chaos and acrimony, also a lot of controversy and corruption because it's Italy politics, making it impossible for any political parties to form a cohesive governing majority. Out of options. All the major factions in the Italian parliament agreed to February 2021 to form a technocratic government of national unity under the leadership of Mario Draghi, the former president of the European Central Bank. Maloney's brothers of Italy alone stayed in opposition, as many observers predicted at the time. That holdout position guaranteed her assent. Given the economic stagnation and pandemic pain the country experienced, brothers of Italy, rapid rise in popularity was hardly surprising. This suggests that Maloney's victory on Sunday had less to do with nostalgia for Italy's fascist past than with anger at the country's parlous present. By the same token, Maloney's popularity may soon wane after she takes on the responsibilities of governing. The fate of the last newcomer hyped as the future of Italian politics is instructive. Since the surprise success in 2018, the five-star movement lost more than half of its vote share and now languishes on the sideline. Even how long Maloney will be able to stay in office is unclear. Although she now heads the biggest faction in the parliament, she will need to maintain the support of both cantankerous coalition partners, Salvini, who will do what he can to take the limelight and is likely to clash with Maloney on foreign policy. For example, he doesn't really want to help Ukraine. And Berlusconi, even ever the opportunist after three terms as prime minister, will have little compunction about selling out a political partner if it suits him. Given how volatile these personalities are, again, Italy, 
and how unstable coalition governments in Italy have proven in the past, a collapse of the government within a year or two or sooner would not be shocking. Long story short, if you don't know much about Italian politics, I know I don't. I suspect you don't. Simmer down. Let's see what happens and what develops. Get good information. Don't just smash send on whatever's trending or try to put our Western politics, especially our American politics, in our terms like right and left and fascist on top of what's going on over there. Things that are different are not the same, especially when it comes to Italian politics, because they're very unique, even in the crazy world of international politics. They do it different over there. And we should observe and learn and talk a little less and stop projecting our own mess on top of them. This is going to be messy enough. Let's watch and see what happens and not make fools of ourselves pretending like we know. More Hurtel right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I want to just touch on this briefly because it's something that gets talked about and everybody kind of knows it, but I don't think it gets highlighted the way it does. How much immigration is an issue in this election? Um, tweet from our friend Eric Garcia, who's on this program frequently. He's the congressional reporter for The Independent. Um, and he's talking about a poll out in the Texas governor race where Greg Abbott maintains a healthy lead over Beto O'Rourke going into their first debate. Um, he's got about a seven point lead right now. Eric made this observation. He said, Abbott has made the calculation that immigration matters more to Texans than abortion. And so far, it looks like that has been a correct assumption. I want to expand on this for a little bit because some folks and some of our progressive friends talk about why immigration is such an issue and they're a little confounded by it. Let me give you an example. Uh, Ted Budd is running for the Senate seat in the state of North Carolina. He's running against Sherry Beasley, former Supreme Court justice in the state. He's probably the favorite, favorite in that race. I interviewed him during the primaries about a week before they went to the office for Big Talker Radio. That's our uh, affiliate that this program goes out on as well. They do great work. Make sure you follow them. You can also get our show there on their app. But I interviewed him for the Big Talker. The day I interviewed him, something very interesting happened. He was touring North Carolina with an official from the Border Patrol Union. Now, why is a Border Patrol Union guy campaigning in North Carolina with a North Carolina Senate? Because even in North Carolina, immigration to the GOP is one of the top issues, even though it's not a border state. That shows you how important this is for fundraising, for the base, for attention in the media, and for their own political calculations. Because they don't do that randomly. They do surveys. They know what people want to talk about. Immigration is a big, big topic. That's why you keep seeing it on the news. That's why you see things like what Abbott and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, did with their immigration stunts. This is working for their base. It works for people that are running for office. And for a senatorial candidate in North Carolina to stop his own media interview and hand the phone to the Border Patrol guy to give his talking points about the Border Patrol, and then I've got to scramble on air to get him to give the phone back to the guy we actually wanted to talk to, that's how important it was. That's calculated. If you don't think immigration is driving a lot of what's going on on the GOP right now, you are absolutely kidding yourself. It's going to be an issue. It's not going to change. And it's not 
policy-driven stuff that they want to talk about. They want to use it as a buzzword. They want to use it in the abstract. And they want to use it a lot like crime is being used right now to get people in line to support their policies over the other party. It would behoove the Democratic Party to get a little bit more cohesive message on it as well. But that's their issue. The GOP is going to talk about immigration. They're going to talk about it in negative ways that are a lot more fear and stuff than what's actually going on on the ground. Get as mad as you want. That's just the reality of it. And those two antidotes, what Eric's mentioning, what I'm mentioning, we're going to see that again going into 2024 because it drives money and it drives votes. And that's the name of the game. More hard tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, been a minute since we had him on, but he is a good friend of ours. We love talking to him. He's at the Dispatch. He's an associate editor there. You've seen him write in a lot of other places as well. Good guy. Andrew Egger, how are you, sir? Good to see you again. Hey, I'm doing well. How are you today? Uh, good to be with you. Um, let's go way out west, even though we're both on the East Coast. A lot of interesting stuff going on in Arizona. I want to start with it on this, and we're going to be working off your piece in the dispatch. We will be linking to this. Read the whole thing for yourself, like we always says. Um, the Mark Kelly Blake Masters Arizona race has gotten really interesting for a lot of the wrong reasons. I want to start here, though, because you cover this stuff. You report on it. Somebody told me a long time ago when I started doing media, they're like, look, when it comes to political races, the writers always want to talk about the horse race. The experts always watch the money. You're watching the money in this race. You're seeing a trend in the money, and the money's coming back to a lot of the power struggle going on in D.C. right now. Yeah, well, the money has been, and as far as this particular race is concerned, maybe the most the most interesting story in recent weeks uh, on the Republican side because what we've seen is um, a little bit of a standoff, a little bit of a game of chicken uh, between Mitch McConnell, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who basically his job at this point in the midterms is just getting as many Republican Senate candidates over the finish line as he possibly can, um, you know, to whatever extent he has the ability to, to influence that with, with his own PAC money. Um, and a, a, a relative newcomer to these sorts of funding games, who is uh, a billionaire Peter Thiel, um, who has, uh, who, who jumped in in a major way in the Republican primaries in a couple of states to elevate candidates who he knew personally and who represented a kind of uh, sort of disruptive brand of Republican politics uh, that he endorsed. And th those two candidates were in Ohio, J.D. Vance, and in Arizona, Blake Masters, both both just sort of uh, former mentees of, of Peter Thiel's personally. Um, in Ohio, uh, Vance is not doing as well as you might expect the median Republican to do, but he's still favored to win. It's a very red state. Um, in Arizona, Blake Masters has been lagging behind what you might expect kind of the median Republican to do in a relatively favorable year uh, for Republicans uh, nationwide in what's, you know, an extremely purple state. Joe Biden won it by a hair uh, in 2020. Essentially, uh, you've got Carrie Lake in the governor's race 
running a couple points ahead of her competitor, even though she is like as MAGA as they come. She's not, you know, exactly a, a big tent um, person who's drawing from from like every possible Republican voter, but she's still running ahead. Blake Masters, by contrast, running against Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, is running about eight points uh, behind, between, but maybe between five and eight points behind, depending on the poll. Um, and so with with Democrats wildly outspending Republicans basically across the board right now, um, Mitch McConnell has been leaning on Peter Thiel, uh, who put up a ton of money for masters in the in the primary, basically saying, look, you know, you put $15 million up for this guy and you got him through uh, through the Republican primary, probably over candidates that I would have thought would have been stronger in the general that I would have rather seen. The least you can do is just keep that money spigot turned on for now. Let me spend my kind of limited quantity of dollars on some of these other races around the country, um, such as in Ohio, such as in New Hampshire, Nevada, um, and and just take this one off my plate. Teal, at least um, in kind of public reporting, he hasn't said anything publicly, but you get kind of the, the sources close to Teal say in the Washington Post or whatever, basically sees his own mission as not being uh, to help Mitch McConnell retake the Senate. He's like, look, I got my guy through the Republican primaries. Uh, I feel like my job's done, and he doesn't want to kick in a bunch more money. So, so what you've seen is this standoff, and it really came to a head last week because McConnell finally basically just said, okay, look, like maybe you're going to spend, maybe you're not going to spend, but I'm going to, but I, I feel like my dollars can be better used elsewhere. And he pulled his, his uh, super PAC, the, the Senate leadership fund pulled all of its spending out of, out of Arizona, which uh, they had initially allotted about $16 million for outside spending there in, in this, in this race. They'd previously cut that by about half at the end of August. And then last week basically said, it's all gone. You know, you're on your own. If other outside groups want to come in, they're welcome to do that. Uh, and and basically said, you know, Peter Thiel, if you want to come in and try to rescue your guy, you can do that. But we're, we're taking our business elsewhere. Now, this didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. Andrew Ego from the dispatch joining us. The reason McConnell's involved at all is because he's fighting on another front with Rick Scott, who's actually got the job of getting people elected to the Senate as his job as chairmanship. He's been fighting with Rick Scott. He's stepping in because of a lack of funding coming from there. That's part of the story, too, because you got Mitch getting kind of tugged in both. He, from Mitch's point of view, he's going to be like, usually this wouldn't be my job to do this, but I'm stepping in and doing it. That's going on at the same time in parallel to the story. Right, right. There's and 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 you always see. I mean, there's there's always a bunch of different groups that kind of ideally work hand in glove um, with one another, if not with the the campaigns. It's illegal for them to work hand in glove with the campaigns. But you know, just just kind of fellow travelers uh, on on the road road toward getting as many Republicans elected as possible. And the the primary arm of that, as you say, usually the the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is chaired by Senator Rick Scott of Florida, right now. They, as a as a, just a matter of dollars and cents, have have not been unbelievably productive uh, in the fundraising in getting out the money to Republican can Republican candidates. Uh, that's kind of one leg missing of the stool, and a second leg missing of the stool for a lot of Republican Senate candidates right now is that uh, Donald Trump, despite not being on the ballot and not being in office. Uh, continues to hoover up a remarkable amount of the small dollar Republican donations that are available around the country. Um, he's got about $100 million he's currently sitting on in, in the bank as, as per his most recent FEC reports. Um, and he has done a little bit, but not that much by way of, um, you know, tossing a little bit here, a little bit there to candidates. Um, 
so basically with with kind of the small dollar stuff mostly going to Trump and the and the NRSC largely missing in action you always have these these kind of leadership packs that get involved and things like that but but it's definitely uh, McConnell's pack has has had to sort of take on an outsized role uh, in this particular cycle for for those reasons yeah Andrew Egger joining us the other part of this story that involves money is uh, master's opponent Mark Kelly and something that for some reason isn't getting covered in the story, but all the insiders I talked to and all the reporters, this is the first thing they mention. Kelly has been an absolute money printer. He's one of the biggest fundraisers for Democrats across the board, not just in the Senate. He's the biggest fundraiser they got, and it's not particularly close. He's got something like $24 million on hand. That's also part of this because it really threw it into sharp relief of, holy cow, this guy, look, he's an astronaut. He's managed to moderate, although he's, you know, fairly mainline progressive in his voting record. He projects pretty moderately. You know, he doesn't he's not a big social media guy. He's not a big in front of the microphone guy. I think he's running a smart campaign. He's got a ton of money. And you know this because you're a reporter where money really does matter is ad buys when you have opposition research against your opponent in a major market. Hello, Phoenix. And Masters has a lot of oppo research. That money difference is the other part of this folks need to pay attention to, isn't it? Because it's massive. Right, right. Yeah. And when when, when you're talking kind of internal versus external money, when you're talking the money the campaigns themselves have versus, you know, kind of the air support that, that can get dropped in uh, nationally, all this stuff we've been talking about is that is that national external support. But but it's it is by far um, the biggest gap in any close Senate race this year. I mean, there's always uh, incumbents always come in with a with a pretty remarkable, almost always come in with a pretty remarkable cash advantage over their non-incumbent challengers. Uh, but this one is special. Uh, it, at, during the summer reporting uh, FEC cycle, as you as you mentioned, Masters had something, uh, Kelly had something like $25 million in cash on hand. Blake Masters has had something like 1.6 million. I mean, it was it was truly, uh, I mean, like 12, 12 to one, basically. Uh, and that has not significantly changed. Um, I've, I've heard from sources close to Blake Masters' campaign uh, that they are having their best uh, their best fundraising quarter, but their best fundraising quarter so far, which you would certainly hope so. Uh, but but just as far as the actual kind of spend on the ground, they're not booking ads. I mean, Blake Masters has not doesn't currently have TV ad buys slated between now and and the midterms uh, for for his campaign period, which is just remarkable for a for a top level swing seat Senate race. He's basically entire, he, he's relied almost entirely on outside spending to get him th this far, um, which formerly was coming almost entirely from Peter Thiel. And now Thiel is out and McConnell is out and he's having to basically piece together, you know, the, the, the only, the only things that are getting spent in the state on his behalf are coming from say like $5 million here from the, from the uh, PAC arm of, of heritage action for America. Uh, the the campaign's arm of the Heritage Foundation, um, little money uh, coming in from the the pack that was Teal's pack before, although it's not Teal's money. You know, a little bit coming in from the the Susan B. Anthony pro life uh, uh, groups, but it's it's all basically. I mean, it's chump change compared to what uh, uh, you know McConnell had slated before, and it's. I mean, you really do see. Uh, I don't know if if the rats fleeing a sinking ship is the is the right analogy exactly, but but. I mean, it's it's it, it is kind of an astonishing, astonishing spending gap, uh, especially when you consider that Kelly is also already polling a number of points up.
Yeah, Andrew Egger joining us. And the other part of this, you just mentioned it. I have my own caveat on that. Uh, when I'm watching politics, one of the things I really pay attention to is when the blame game starts before you actually have a result. That's usually a telltale sign. I think a lot of this McConnell feel stuff and the master stuff and the MAGA stuff, and we're going to talk about Trump in a minute, that part of it too. I think a lot of this is actually the blame game setting up because part of the looming shadow of this race is Arizona is rapidly changing. It's a It's going purple. It's a diversifying state. The demographics are changing. And we're going to do this again basically in, in two years, which basically means in about a year we're going to do this all over again because they're going to primary cinema. And that's going to be another hotly contested race. I think it's not only a blame game. I think we got a lot of positioning going on in Arizona for what's getting ready to happen when they think they might have an easy pickup because they're going to primary cinema. That's going to happen. And we're going to do this all over again in, what, six months, a year, if not sooner? Right. right. No, you're you're absolutely right about that. And I think that, that, that a big part of this is that Blake Masters going in was was kind of a, a a trial balloon candidate for a specific kind of of political coalition, um, a coalition maybe that exists more online than anything else. I mean, he's he's supposed to be one of these guys who is quote unquote quote unquote based. Um, you know, sim- uh, I still don't know what that means. Maybe I'm on. Basically, Can you explain it to me because well, everybody seems to have a different definition. <laughs> it, like my kids saying slay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it means, but based in Master's case, it essentially is just supposed to mean that that he is more aligned with the kind of very online new right, um, somewhat like J.D. Vance, more willing to kind of use the levers of state power to accomplish right wing ends, less committed to uh, sort of setting up and establishing a, a sort of value neutral liberal sphere of 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 lawmaking um, sort of as a backdrop for political struggles to play out against uh, a lot more skeptical of foreign intervention, a lot more skeptical of big tech um, more and and big tech probably as the primary uh, avenue in which they're more comfortable using what, what more classical conservatives um, would, would see as kind of unacceptably uh, strong arm tactics uh, interfering with markets to basically break the political power of companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter. Um, so so he's he's sort of seen as being at the vanguard of a lot of that stuff, even though obviously in a lot of times perception and 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 reality don't necessarily line up. Um, but but because there's a big political coalition online uh, that that wants to see a lot more candidates like Masters, it is not a good thing for Masters just to kind of like go up and smoke under his own power, which which to be fair, I mean, uh, to be fair to that coalition, it's not like Masters has run a super tight race and worked super hard and is now coming up short. I mean, these these things like like the fundraising and and some of the kind of policy headaches that he's caused for himself seem to have a lot more to do with just kind of like being a political rookie than they do with any particular uh, you know political coalition that he represents. He's just, I mean, he he didn't seem to think he would need to raise his own money coming into the race and, and pound the pavement and do that. Um, and now that's coming back to bite him. Um, but 
obviously, since he is sort of a figurehead of, 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 of this kind of movement, you've already seen a lot of these people, a lot of these kind of new right, more MAGA, guy, MAGA type guys setting up this, this move of McConnell to pull away as like the thing that, that maybe is going to have sunk the master's campaign, which is, which is, I mean, in my, in my analytical point of view, extremely transparently just a cover. Uh, be, uh, but, but what you've seen is, um, probably the most prominent move of this kind. I mean, obviously there have been a lot of op-eds kind of chastising Mitch McConnell from media aligned with these people. Um, but the chair of the uh, state Republican party, who is uh, Kelly Ward, who's a very, um, just kind of very, very MAGA type grassroots person. I mean, like she, she was all in on the election fraud stuff um, a couple of years ago, still is that, that sort of thing. Um, she sent an open letter to McConnell immediately prior to his pulling out the, the, the move. And the, I guess she, she sent it, the state party sent it, she's the chair. Um, basically just saying, look, this is a winnable race. We really need you to double down here. Um, we really, really think that, you know, the more you spend, the better off we are. And, and it, you know, she didn't just send it to Mitch McConnell. It's an open letter, right? It's it's setting him up to kind of to be the fall guy um, if and when Masters loses. Um, and you can, obviously you can see why uh, they would, they would rather it be McConnell, the kind of, the kind of er establishment guy uh, who they could point the figure at finger at rather than saying, okay, uh, was Blake Masters a bad, bad candidate? Is this sort of campaign a non-starter uh, in a swing state? That sort of thing. Yeah. And for those of you that are uninitiated, go back a couple years. Kelly Ward does not like Mitch McConnell at all. And she's very public and there's a lot of video on it. If you want to look it up yourself, we're continuing our conversation with Andrew Egger of the dispatch does great work. Okay. The looming thing in every single race on the Republican side is what's Donald Trump doing? Well, he says a lot of stuff. He truth socials a lot of stuff because he can't tweet anymore. He releases statements about a lot of stuff. But what do we start with with our conversation? Following the money usually tells us a lot about these campaigns. He's not spending a lot of money on these races, even ones like this, where it looks like he's got a candidate of his choice and a spot to actually make a difference. Right, right. So, so the big question here, and this is a development even since I wrote the piece we've been talking about, um, it is not necessarily such an uh, such a slam dunk that Donald Trump isn't spending anymore. Uh, there was a piece of news over the weekend um, that that his campaign is, or at least advisors close to him, again not the campaign, um, have been setting up a new uh, super PAC to, that, that 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 in theory they could use to funnel a lot more money in, into these midterms. I mean, you can do you can stand these things up pretty quickly. Um, the campaign could could put money into the PAC, and then the PAC could be used. Um, you know, to, to, to help out guys like masters. Um, and you have actually, I mean, Mitch McConnell spoke approvingly about this. Um, we don't yet know what that's going to look like, how, whether it's a flash in the pan, whether it's like real money, whether he's really going to like put a lot, put a lot behind this to prop up guys like masters. Um, masters is endorsed by Trump. A lot of these guys, uh, in these swing States won their primaries largely on the back of, of a Trump endorsement. So it would seem like it would make a lot of sense. Um, unless he makes the, um, uh, analytical assumption that, that Masters is so far underwater that he's better off trying to trying to shore up his guys elsewhere. Um, but but in theory, this is the the other reason why McConnell might have pulled out of of the the Masters race, not because he necessarily sees it as a lost cause, but just to to really put the pressure on both Teal and Trump to, to hopefully get more involved. So I think you'd certainly, uh, Mitch McConnell would certainly breathe a sigh of relief to see any more money flowing into, into his, 
his guys races, you know, even, even, even down in places where he is no longer spending himself. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on that because Trump's got a lot of other expenses, i.e. legal expenses coming on that you can, you can differ the numbers and get the campaign cash to that in certain ways. I suspect that's probably what he's doing there. That's basically, yeah. Yeah. The, the legal stuff is basically the only thing he's been spending money on out of his hundred million in the bank for the past several months. And to be fair, he's got good reason to want to hoard some money for legal things coming up from the look of things. Let's talk about these candidates for a second. You mentioned Peter Thiel's two candidates are Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, and this isn't my opinion, this is sourced, has consistently refused to get any kind of outside help, whether it was conservative help, MAGA help, the libertarians. I know for a fact reached out. I talked to them about it. He's refused any outside help at all, and it shows. Now, Ohio's red enough. He may get away with it and slide through anyway. Hersher Walker down in, in Georgia started out kind of a disaster. About six, seven weeks ago, he accepted outside help. They got some campaign folks in there. His numbers are coming back up. He's doing smart stuff now, like downplaying his poll. You know, that strategy stuff. He didn't just come out and say that. He got some help. It's not just the money. You actually have to run a campaign, too. The money's one thing, but do you see Blake Masters getting any offers or any help from the outside whatsoever to try to turn this around at this late hour? Because if they're not going to give him money... If there's no money, there's none of those same consultants that are bailing out Herschel Walker and those folks going to come running because you ain't going to be paying them. Right. Yeah. They have had some some staff turnover and I'm I'm not incredibly well versed on the details of of how it all went down. I mean, I, he his campaign manager either quit or was fired uh, a month ago or something like that. Um, and but yeah, I mean, it's it's the basic problem that you identify. I mean, it's 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 there are there are better places to go if you are like a crack operative than the Blake Masters campaign in Arizona. I mean, they're 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 basically keeping the lights on and and that's it as far as their internal money is concerned. So so yeah, it's a real problem. I, I have not heard anything about kind of a rescue team coming in for for Blake Masters. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. What do we make of McConnell here? Because he's getting towards the end. If they don't get the majority back, it's hard to see where maybe they probably won't get it the next cycle either. The It's, it's not even po- politics. Like the Senate runs more to the cycle than the House does because you got certain races in certain places, a third of the Senate every two years. You can kind of guess where it's going to go. This seems like a weird way for him to spend his last hurrah. Does he do this out of duty, do you think? Does he really think they got a chance of taking the Senate what do you think his motivations here, or is there a little bit of pride involved here of like, no, wait a minute, I'm still in charge here, especially with the Rick Scott stuff going on behind his back. Like, no, no, I'm in charge. Let me flex a little bit here because I've got the money to do it. Yeah, I've I've always felt like Mitch McConnell is one of the easiest guys to do kind of psychoanalysis on in all of politics. I mean, it's like he lives 
he wakes up every morning trying to maximize Republicans' chances of retaking the body and making him majority leader again, right? <laughs> so those those odds have slimmed somewhat over the over the summer. It's not looking as good that he's going to get that back from Chuck Schumer as it did before. But it's all, I mean, it's just, you can usually just count on McConnell to make the high percentage play. So he has a certain amount of dollars to spend in his pack uh, to try to, you know, find some path, uh, some strategic path back to the majority. Um, and he's just, he's just taking the play uh, that, that maximizes that. And I think, I mean, it, it, as far as pride and things are concerned, I just think he's, he's been willing to, to eat a lot of indignity all through the Trump era. He's, he's usually willing to be the bad guy. He doesn't, doesn't kind of, he doesn't have a tendency to kind of blink in the face of these kind of pressure campaigns of like, well, look, if you don't, if you don't sort of go along with this strategic line, you're going to look really bad in conservative media, which is also part of the reason why he's, he's become such a conservative media villain. a lot of the time, it's just kind of the, the proto establishment guy. Um, I've, I see basically no reason to believe that there's anything other than strategic considerations uh, going into a lot of these things. Some people have said, yeah, uh, Blake Masters uh, was kind of insulting to Mitch McConnell during the during the primary. And maybe that's why um, I don't necessarily buy that. Master, Masters had already significantly moderated his tone on McConnell after he won the primary. McConnell's been McConnell's hosted fundraisers for him in D.C. Um, so it does seem I mean, in theory, that 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 line is there. I think if he if if Masters does lose, people will make a lot of that. But but again, I just think I think the easiest analytical line, and usually the most accurate one, is is McConnell's trying to help Republicans retake the Senate by by any means necessary. Yeah, Andrew Egger, the Dispatch, joining us. You mentioned it specifically in your piece. I kind of was setting that up for this because whatever you think of cocaine, Mitch, good, bad, or indifferent. He wants the Republicans to win, the party to win, raise the, raise all boats. If he's got to do a little dirty work to do that, he'll do that. If he has to do whatever, he wants the Senate. That's his sole goal. The reason that's clashing with people like Peter Thiel, with people like Donald Trump, with the MAGA wing of the party, is because they, first and foremost, want a specific kind of candidate to win. And then they think about majorities somewhat secondly. That's the conflict, and this is not going to be the last time the GOP deals with this, they're going to deal with this in 2024, whether it's Trump or somebody else. This is ingrained into the GOP dynamic right now, isn't it? This insider, outsider, the old guard that understands that you got to legislate, folks that want a specific kind of purity candidates. This isn't going away anytime soon, is it? No, definitely. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that, you know, M McConnell is too good of a kind of heel for the, the MAGA people, for them to stop going after him. And there's really no downside to it because at the end of the day, he doesn't, he doesn't really punch back. I mean, if, if Donald Trump becomes president again, Mitch McConnell is going to be his most valuable ally again. Um, and, and that's just kind of full stop in terms of getting the things passed that, that he wants to get passed. So, uh, so I think we are likely to continue to see this exact same, um, kind of one dynamic in the actual, uh, in, in, in the actual power centers of, of Washington and another dynamic completely playing out in, in Trump's statements and, and MAGA Twitter and conservative media, uh, basically up until the point when either Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell, uh, their meal ticket runs out and they step away. Yeah. I'm not taking the over under on which one of them gets out of politics first, because it's basically going to be one of them is going to have to pass away. I'm afraid that's the only reason either one of those are going to give it up. Well, McConnell Look, they, doesn't have term limits, so that helps, but, um, but you know, they, not one, one, once more undone at best for, for Trump, right? You'd think so, but you know, look, they call Mitch the turtle for a reason, and it, it is a backhanded compliment. 
he you you use the term heel. That's a pro wrestling term for those of you that are uninitiated. He plays the bad guy on purpose to get the result he wants. He understands that he can take the flack. He's electric. He's electorally secure. That's why he can tolerate things like Trump because you know Trump really can't touch him. So he can play along. That's very much ingrained in who Mitch McConnell is. So yeah, Blake Masters can absolutely trash him in the primary and then turn around and ask him for help, and he's going to eat it and go do it because he thinks it. When they lose Mitch McConnell in the GOP in the Senate, I don't think the GOP and especially maybe the MAGA wing realize the lightning rod that they're losing. He's umbrellaed a lot of crap off of the GOP over the years. He's gotten a lot of stuff done. Whether you like him or not, he's effective. Like it was shocking when Schumer got one over on him on Bill Back Mansion. That's how good he is, is that it surprised people, right? I don't think people realize when Mitch steps off the scene what a void that's going to leave in the GOP in Washington and how they actually get stuff done, is it? Well, it's hard to imagine who the next one up would be. I mean, I, I, it's impossible for the me to imagine John's Rick Scott. Well, the, the, the John's, the John's more so than Scott, I think. I think, you know, yeah, I mean, Cornyn could, could, could do it. Doom could do it. I don't, I have no idea um, what, what they'd look like. Cause I haven't talked to anybody close to any of the three of them about what that would look like. But yeah, I mean, it's, I, I haven't covered other majority leaders uh, than than him and Schumer. He's been around a while, but 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 I mean, I think you're exactly right with the lightning rod analogy. That's been the big just taking the pressure off of off of individual members as far as like hard votes is concerned. Letting th- that is one of the biggest differences between Trump and and McConnell as far as the actual act of legislation is concerned. Is that McConnell, as long as he had the votes to pass something, was always more than happy. To, to bless individual senators who needed to peel off for this or that or the other ideological reason. Um, whereas Trump, every vote that he cared about was a purity test um, where he kind of dared all of the, everybody in both houses to cross him at their peril, you know? Um, and, and it was, yeah, it's just two different, two very different styles. One of which is more conducive to having more Republicans in office in the long run than the other. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Andrew Egger of the Dispatch. Big doings at the Dispatch. You are moving over. You're going back to a website-based thing. You got some big names coming in lately. Uh, Let folks know what's going on over at the Dispatch where you've been working, where I've been reading. It's a daily read for me. I'm subscribed to it. But let folks know because y'all got some big doings going on over there. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Um, so the the couple names we've hired recently, Kevin Williamson over from National Review, uh, Ala Pundit, who we now have to refer to as Nick Katogio. Katogio, I actually don't know how you pronounce his last name. It's hard not to just say Ala Pundit over from over from Hot Air. It's been concerning. They both came in and like started writing a lot very quickly and kind of I think put the pressure on everybody else to to up our own output. Um, but those have been those have been great. Um, got to meet Kevin uh, at a at a staff retreat we had a, a week or two ago. Um, have yet to actually meet Nick. Uh, AKA Ala Pundit, but looking forward to that as well. And then, yeah, we are we are officially uh, in the next couple of months here saying farewell to Substack, where we have lived uh, since we launched in 2019. They've been they've been a useful platform for us to grow, but uh, um, but I it, I think the consensus is that we have kind of outgrown them, and and that they are uh, it's they're basically just it, it was our, our partnership was with them was kind of a trial balloon to be like could you run like a full company through this through this product as opposed to what they what they had kind of initially set themselves up for which is like individual writers with their newsletters um and i think that that as we got larger you know the, for a very small uh editorial company maybe the answer is yes uh 
for a small to medium sized one, increasingly no, just in terms of the the amount of control we had over our own our own back end and things like that. But but uh, but hopefully that part will not actually be a big deal to anybody because we're trying to make it as kind of seamless and it's not going to be a big splashy new, not a lot of new bells and whistles on the on the new site or anything like that. But but hopefully uh hopefully it'll still be a, a good experience for for people on the other side. Yeah, and Ala Pundit, I'm I'm not even going to try to call him Nick. It's just going to be too weird. He, he's one of the few writers, agree or disagree, and I didn't always agree with him. He was just, a, he's one of the few writers, like when something broke, I was like, I want to know what Alapundin thinks about it. He's that good. Um, for folks that have never read him, uh, left, right, or center, he's one of those I tell uh, my progressive friends, like, you need to read this guy. Like, he's one of the guys, he's basically been a daily read for years for me. So I was very excited for you guys to get him. Yeah, and we if something know- breaks, if something breaks, I mean odds are he has written about it. I mean, unbelievably yeah. prolific output and just, and, but, but like really thoughtful. I mean, it's not, it's not, he's just kind of firing off half big takes. It's always very, I, the, the, the kind of like the intersection of high quality and high quantity. Uh, I, I don't know that I've seen anything like it before. Yeah, and, and, and Williamson is the combustible element. He, he goes there. He has a unique writing style that you just, you got to read it, whether you, you hate read it or love read it, you got to read it because the way he writes. So um, we'll be watching with success. Andrew Eggers, always thrilled to have you. Let folks know where your social media is till we get you back on Hartel again. It will not be as long as last time, my friend, because we're going to have a very busy fall, I think. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, find me on Twitter, Egger DC. Find me at the dispatch.com where I, uh, uh, have my writing up pretty frequently. Edit the morning newsletter. Uh, come say hi. Yep, fantastic stuff, Andrew Eger. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. back to Hurtel. A lot of heavy stuff. Let's do something light. Uh, I love the actor Alan Rickman. He's, of course, iconic. He had so many roles over the years from Die Hard to Harry Potter to, you know, name whatever you want. Bottle Shock was a particular favorite. Um, He just was good in whatever he was in. It's not accidental. But anyway, they've released some of his personal diary. He carried a scratchbook diary where he would just write two or three sentences every day in it. That's been publicly released now. Um, And also, some of his co-stars and closest friends have been writing memorials. This is from The Guardian. This is Emma Thomas, the eminent uh, actress that he worked with many times and was a very close friend to. She wrote this, and I wanted to bring it up on the show as we remember the great Alan Rickman. The most remarkable thing about the first few days after Alan died was the number of actors, poets, musicians, playwrights, and directors who wanted to express their gratitude for all the help he'd given them. I don't think I know anyone in the business who has championed more aspiring artists nor unerringly perceived so many great ones before they became great. Quite a number of that lately, they said, been too shy to thank him personally. They found it hard to approach him of all the contradictions in my blissfully contradictory friend. It is perhaps the greatest, this combination of profound nurturing and impenetrably distant. He was not, of course, distant. He was alarmingly present at all times. The inscrutability was partly a protective shield. If anyone did approach him with anything like gratitude or just a question, they would be greeted with a depth of sweetness that no one who didn't know him could ever guess at. And he was not, of course, unflappable. I could flap him like nobody's business. And when I did, he was fierce with me and did me no end of no good. He was generous and challenging, dangerous and comical. 
sexy and androgynous, viral and peculiar, temperamental and languid, fastidious and casual. My list is endless. There was something of the sage about him, and he had to be more confident, and he'd been all the more corruptible. He could probably have started his own religion, which is funny because he played the angel like God in Dogma, and that was another one of my favorite roles, but back to Emma Thompson. His taste in all things, from sausages to furnishes, appeared to me to be impeccable. The trouble with death is that there's no next. There's only what was, and for that I am profoundly and heartbrokenly grateful. The last thing we ever did together was change a plug on a standard lamp in his hospital room. The task went the same way as everything else we did together. I had to go. He told me to try something else. I tried it and it didn't work, so he had to go. I got impatient and took it from him and tried again, and it still wasn't right. We both got irritable. Then he patiently took it all apart again and got the right lead in the right hole. I said, screw it in. We complained about how fiddly it was. Then we had a cup of tea. And it took us at least a half hour. And he said afterwards, well, it was a good thing I decided not to be an electrician. Good for us as well. Uh, I do miss him on stage. I hope his memory is blessing to his family and friends. thought that'd be a better way than some other political story to end our time together today, which it is over. That's do it for her to tell. Make sure you're following us on however you're watching or listening, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment. We'd love to read those. Make sure you share us on your social media. We sure appreciate it. Coming off the biggest week we've ever had of downloads, that's all because of you. We do good work, and you tell people about it. That's the partnership. As long as you keep listening and watching, we'll keep doing it. So wherever you are, cross street around the world, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon. Omar Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.